All right, Joshua chapter number 20 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, The Lord also spake unto Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hand because he smote his neighbor unwittingly and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and unto his own house unto the city from whence he fled. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you would magnify and glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, this morning, that through your holy word we would see him high and holy and lifted up. Father, you know the hearts of each and every person here. I do not. Lord, if it was up to me to say just the right things in just the right way, I'd surely fail. But I pray, Father, that you guard my lips. God, that there'd not be anything that ought to be said that I'd refrain from saying. That there'd not be anything that I shouldn't say that I would say. But Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would guide and lead and direct every part of this service today. We thank you for his presence. We thank you for the working of the Lord that we've already experienced this morning. And Lord, we just look forward to your presence manifest amongst us. Lord, we love you. We ask if there's any lost and undone amongst us that they would come to know your Son as their Savior. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Joshua chapter number 20, we have the issuing forth of six cities that belong to the Levites in the land of Canaan after Joshua has led the children of Israel into the promised land that are appointed for a purpose that is denoted by the word refuge. They are called cities of refuge. One of the greatest things that you'll ever do is take the time to read through the book of Joshua. I don't know why it is, but that's a book of the Bible that oftentimes people skip over and do not take the time to read. Uh, We spend a lot more time preaching on the wilderness than we do preaching on the promised land. I don't know why that is. But it could be why so many Christians are stuck in the wilderness when they ought to be in the promised land. Amen? The wilderness is a picture of the defeated Christian life. It's a picture of uh, believers that are trying to operate in the energy of their flesh. And Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Canaan is a picture of the victorious Christian life. You say, preacher, why do you believe that? I heard a song one time said that Canaan was a picture of heaven. If you want to believe that, I won't throw my shoe at you. That's fine. But there's a few problems with that premise. One of them is this. There were battles to be fought in Canaan. And I would have you to know that for the believer, once he dies and departs and is with Christ, there's no more battles to fight. Amen? There were enemies in Canaan. There were Philistines in Canaan. There were blasphemers in Canaan. There were infidels and God-haters in Canaan. And if I read my Bible right, there's not any of that in heaven. But you see, Canaan was a picture of the life that God intended for His people to live. But we understand as we read through the book of Joshua that there is both a typical application, but also a practical application. 
And within the vein of these practical applications, as the nation of Israel was to live in the promised land, God ordained that there would be six cities that would be set forth, cities of refuge, for the purpose of being sanctuaries for a person that was guilty of manslaughter. A person that had not hated his neighbor aforetime, a person that had not with malice and ill will and premeditation determined to kill his neighbor, but a place where if someone had inadvertently, by incident or by accident, had slain their neighbor, there was a place that they could go where they could find safety and where they could find refuge. Now, as I read my Bible, I am struck by the use of this word refuge. And uh, Let me tell you why. Because if you are familiar at all with your Bible, then when you heard the word refuge, your mind probably went to the book of Psalms. Because over and over and over again in the book of Psalms, we're told how that God is our refuge. In fact, let me read just one verse. It was hard to pick one, but I didn't have room to put a hundred of them. I could have, but I didn't have room. But in Psalms 46 and verse 1, the Word of God says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. As a student of the Bible, we try to follow a rule that's called the law of first mention. That means that any time something is mentioned in the Bible for the very first time, it bears qualities or ideas that unless they are changed through a dispensational change or a doctrinal change, they'll hold true all the way through the Word of God. In other words, the first time, uh, for instance, in the Word of God, uh, that blood is mentioned, it is covering the sins of a human being. And as you read through the Word of God, you'll find that every time blood and sacrifice are mentioned in a positive way, it's always talking about the covering of the sins of mankind. For instance, the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis about the lamb that was going to come. How that uh, God ordained that Abraham would go up upon Mount Moriah and would offer his son Isaac. Isaac looked at his daddy. It must have got kind of awkward there because as they're walking somewhere along the way, Isaac realizes that they've got everything but a sacrifice. And he turns and he looks at his daddy and he says, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham looked at him and said, My son God shall provide himself a lamb. Well, don't you know that's what John was thinking about in John chapter number 1, when the next day John seeth Jesus coming and saith unto him, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. I'm saying there is a continuity of thought that takes place when something is mentioned for the first time. Well, in the Word of God, the very first time that the word refuge is mentioned is in Numbers chapter number 35. Did you notice in our text what it says in verse number 2? Speak to the children of Israel, saying, I point out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses. Now, what Joshua is talking about here, what the Lord's talking about to Joshua, is Numbers chapter 35. Because in Numbers chapter 35, you'll find a very lengthy discourse on all of the guidelines, all of the particulars, all of the rules and regulations concerning these cities of refuge. So it is no wonder that as we read the Bible, if we make proper scriptural application, if we're told the first time about these cities of refuge, and then when we read later on in our Bible that our God is a refuge, it should be no stretch of the imagination to see that in these cities we find a picture of the sanctuary that the sinner has in the person of Jesus Christ. Can I say to you this morning that there's only one place that you'll find sure shelter from the wrath of God. 
There's only one place that the sinner can have his sins forgiven. There's not a hundred places. There's not twenty places. There's not five places. There's not even two places. It's not at any altar, but it's at the altar. It's not at any cross, but it's at the cross. It's not with any Savior, but it's with the only Savior, the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. It's only through the person of Jesus Christ. So as I read this passage, I find a picture of the Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ. I find a picture of the standing that the sinner has once they've repented and put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll get to preaching here in a moment, and we didn't take the time to read them, but let me give you the names of these six cities. That's of great importance. You know, names meant something in the Word of God. Nowadays, people name uh, their children and, and name places things just because they sound pretty. But in the Word of God, names had great significance. There are six cities that are mentioned. On the west side uh, of the River Jordan, there were three cities. The first was by the name of Kedesh. The next was by the name of Shechem. And the next was by the name of Hebron. On the east side of the River Jordan, many of you may have heard uh, of some of these names, there was a city by the name of Bezer in the wilderness. And there was a city by the name of Ramoth, or most of the time when you see it in Scripture, it's called Ramoth-Gilead. And then if you know anything about uh, Israel's history, then you've no doubt heard the name or the phrase, the Golan Heights. And Golan was the sixth city that was mentioned. Three on the west side of the River Jordan and three on the east side of the River Jordan. Now you say, preach, well that don't mean nothing to me. Well, if you learn a little bit about the history, it'll start to mean something. You see, the word Kedesh literally means sanctuary. And can I say that these six cities and the progression that God give us, uh, they, they somehow present to us the progression of the Christian life. Because, you know, when I was a sinner and I came to Jesus Christ, there weren't a lot of things that I was looking for, but I was looking for sanctuary. I was aware that I was a sinner. I was aware I was uh, under the wrath of God. That's what John 3.36 says, that if you've not believed, the wrath of God abideth on you already. And the first city I came to, the first place I ran to, when God convinced me that I was a sinner and I came to Jesus, I wasn't looking to be a good person. I wasn't looking to be an upstanding citizen. I knew about hell and I was afraid of it. And I knew I was headed there and I was looking for sanctuary. But then I read about a place named Shechem. Shechem is very important in the Word of God. You'll find it appearing over and over again. Now, the word Shechem literally means back or shoulder or ridge. Now, that don't seem very significant. We could strain an application. Uh, but I found something interesting as I studied the city of Shechem. Not as much what it name, its name is, but where it pops up in Scripture. You see, if you were to turn over, you don't have to, but if you were to turn over to John chapter number 4, you'd find that the Lord met a woman by the well of Jacob uh, at, the, at a city that is known as Sychar. That's the New Testament rendering of the word Shechem. So you see, when I think of the word Shechem, I don't only uh, think of the idea of a ridge or a back or a shoulder, and we can make an application, but when I think of the word Shechem and the place Shechem, I think of a broken and lonely woman that had spent years trying to find satisfaction in the relationships of men, that had spent years trying to find happiness, but all of a sudden she meets a man that meets her needs fully, and finally she meets a man that she was not looking for. She meets a man that she never expected when she goes to a well and begins to draw water and here is this magnificent person the magnetic son of God that looks at her and says if you'll drink of the water that I have you'll never thirst again see I think of the word satisfaction can I say that when I came to Jesus for sanctuary I found sanctuary but I also found satisfaction there's never anything else I ever needed 
One of the great injustices that we do to our young people is, is allowing them to believe that the world can provide something for them that Jesus Christ cannot provide. Well, the world can. It can provide a lot of heartache. It can provide a lot of destruction, a lot of disaster. But let me tell you something. It lays at a lot of our feet the reason that our young people flock away from Bible Christianity because they don't see that we're satisfied, so they're not satisfied. And you know that anybody that's satisfied with anything other than Jesus Christ, it's because they're not satisfied with Jesus Christ. And it's not because He's not satisfying. It's because they've allowed the world to alter and to change their tastes and their desires and their longings. You know, I've found this, that the more time we spend with Jesus Christ, the more time we want to spend with Jesus Christ. I find that the more time that we get in the Word of God, the more time we want to be in the Word of God. That's the funny paradox of this Christian life, is once you get out, it's easy to stay out, but if you'll get in, you'll find that you'll stay in because he's satisfying. I read about a place named Hebron. Hebron was an important city. Hebron was the place where Abraham had dwelt in the plains of Mamre. Hebron was an important place because it was the place that David had reigned from for the first uh, four years or so of his reign as the king. But when I, when I read the word Hebron, I find that it means fellowship or association. And I find in the Christian life Uh, that I came to Jesus for sanctuary, and I found satisfaction. And then it went a step further when I found fellowship and association with Him. You know, most of the time, the sinner, when he comes to Jesus, he's not looking for fellowship. He's looking for sanctuary. But you'll find that if you'll just spend a little time with Him, it won't be long before that fellowship will grow sweet to you. That time when you get alone with the Lord, that time when you spend time alone in His presence and in His throne room, when you learn how to talk to Him and He'll talk back to you. I'm not talking about audibly, but I'm saying when you learn what it is to commune in the Holy Ghost with the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find it's a sweet place to be. I see a place of fellowship. Then there's a place by the name of Bezer. Bezer is an interesting word. It means a lot of different things depending on who you ask. But I found this definition was very interesting. The word Bezer is uh, is, uh, coupled with the idea of vine branches. Vine branches. And it was a place where vineyards and vines growed very readily and very easily. And when I thought about the vine branches, I couldn't help but think of John chapter 15. Where the Lord says, I am the vine. You're the branches. My father is the husbandman. You see, it's a place of growth. It's a place of fruitfulness. And I found this to be true in the Christian life, that I didn't come to Jesus planning on doing much. Can I be honest? When I came to Jesus, I didn't expect to do much. I expected to be saved from the wrath that was upon me. But I didn't expect to ever be used of Him. I didn't expect to ever do what I do now. I didn't expect for God to ever be able to use me in any way, but I found that if I would get alone with Him, get satisfied in Him, get some fellowship with Him, I find that I grow in a pl- and it's a place where I can be used of Him. There's a place by the name of Ramoth, Ramoth Gilead. And you'll find the name Ramoth coupled with lots of different places in the Bible. And the reason is because the word Ramoth literally means heights or high places. You know the problem with a lot of Christians is they want the high places at the beginning, not the high places at the end. There's a lot of Christians that they're just trying, or I say Christians, I worry about false professions with these folks that are just trying Jesus out. And I'm not going to spend time trying to denote every particular or trying to dissect your profession of faith. That's not my job. That's between you and God. But can I merely say that uh, as a Christian, if you'll get in, if you'll stay in, if you'll stick in, if you'll be faithful, you'll find that God will take you through some high places in life. 
I'm talking about places that the world can't provide for you. Can I say, when a person sees their child come to know Christ, I'd imagine that's a high place, don't you? I think when a person sees their spouse come to know the Savior, oh, what a high place that must be in Jesus Christ. I would imagine when a person first leads someone to the Lord, I remember what it was for me. Oh, what a high place in my Christian life when I thought that God could use me to lead someone to His Son and His Savior. I'm merely saying if you'll be faithful, God will bring you to some high places. But then there's another place and a final place, and we're not even preaching yet, so don't get excited. It's the introduction. We ain't supposed to get excited during the introduction. There's a place by the name of Golan. And here is the great paradoxical truth of the Christian experience. You know what Golan means? It means captivity. Captivity. You know what the greatest place you can attain to is in your Christian life? Is to be able to say, like Paul did, I am the prisoner of Jesus Christ. The greatest level of experience that you can find in your Christian life is to rejoice in the chains that the love of Christ binds you with and to find in that captivity a place of rest and security. Can I say there's not many people, not many Christians interested in that. You you know, we talk about liberty an awful lot in, in churches. We do. And I understand what's meant. And let me say that liberty does have a beautiful scriptural connotation. But can I say that there is a beauty that surpasses the liberty that we claim we have. And that is the bondage that we experience when we through our love are knit to the person of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of bondage we need to long for. Not the bondage of legalism. Not the bondage of hypocrisy. Not the bondage of man's tradition or standards. But the bondage that comes through falling head over heels in love with Jesus Christ. And knowing what it is to not want to wander from Him. To not want to stray from Him. To not want to go anywhere to find anything. You see, when I read about these cities, I see a composite picture of the Christian life. And can I just point out three sweet truths to you this morning that I hope will help you. Let's take a moment and let's look at the slayer that's mentioned. Notice first off his deed. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither. You see, when I see this slayer, I see a picture of the sinner. And the reason I see a picture of the sinner, not because the sinner is innocent or naive in what it does, but do you know that uh, a sinner doesn't even realize truly that they're a sinner until the Word of God shows it to them? You know what people will say. You'll talk to folks, and I've talked to folks, and I've asked them, are you a sinner? And they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not the worst person. That's not admitting you're a sinner. And people will say, well, I'm not the best person, but I'm better than that person. No, listen, if that's the only admission you've ever made to your sin nature, that's not an admission at all. You, you, know, that's, that, you know, that's how people get fat. <laughs> you know, that's the truth. I, I was talking to a fat man one time, and uh, I won't tell you who he is, but I was talking to a fat man one time, and, and uh, he made this statement to him. This was a big old boy. I mean, I'm not just talking about a little overweight. Of course, I guess the term a little overweight is relative to who you're standing with, but uh, I, I mean, he was way overweight, and he said this to me. He said, Brother Toby, you know how I got this way? He said, I got this way going to buffets. And I, I said, going to, to buffet, you know buffet. You know what that stands for, big, ugly, fat folks eating together, right? Amen. And he said, no, 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 it wasn't that I could eat as much as I wanted. He said, the reason that I gained so much weight when I went to buffets, he said, is because there was always someone fatter than me. 
that was always one plate ahead of me. And he said, every time that I'd know I should stop and I'd know that something was wrong, he said, I'd look over and I'd see that fellow that was fatter than me. And I'd say, well, I guess I can keep on eating. You know, that's the sinner. The sinner, they don't really realize what it means to be a sinner. And I'm not making excuses for them, but that was true. Their, their minds are blinded from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what they always say? It's not that they won't admit that they are a sinner. It's that they won't admit, like Paul, that I'm the chiefest of sinners. You say, Brother Toby, do you believe that Paul was the worst person to ever live? No, Paul probably wasn't the worst person to ever live. But here's the difference. You ask me about Paul, and I say, oh, what a man. But you ask Paul about Paul, and he says, oh, what a man I was. You ask the sinner if he knows he's a sinner, and if he says, well, I'm as bad as some and better than some. That's not admitting you're a sinner. Admitting you're a sinner is acknowledging that you're lost and undone without Jesus Christ. You see, this slayer pictures the sinner to me because it wasn't something that he intentionally tried to do. It's just who and what he was. In the very same way, the sinner, that's who and what he is. And when the sinner realizes, here's the crisis point. When the sinner is faced with who he is and what he's done, what does he do about it? Remember what Paul said about his life? He talked about all the persecutions that he committed against the church. But then you know what he said? He said, but I received mercy because I did it in ignorance. You know who doesn't receive mercy? The sinner that once he knows he's a sinner continues to reject Jesus Christ. You see, this slayer, he had sinned, he had done wrong, he was guilty, there was no question of his guilt. But when he knew of his guilt, he said, I've got to find a place where I can get help and find refuge. I see his deed, but I see his danger. Look what it says at the end of verse 3. It says, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. I thought this was interesting as I read about this avenger of blood. The word avenger is found several times in the Word of God, but predominantly is found connected with the idea of the cities of refuge. And if you're if you're a preacher or a Sunday school teacher, you ever prepare lessons uh, that are sort of like this, and you start trying to think, who could that be? What is that? What does that mean? I thought, well, you know, maybe it's death. But here's the problem. Death comes to all of us. If the Lord tarries His coming, we're all going to experience death. But why do we experience death? Well, as I studied that word avenger, I found something very interesting. You know what that word uh, avenger literally means? It means kinsman redeemer. That's very interesting. You know why? Because it's denoting the person who would have the legal right to pursue this slayer. You know, as you read through the book of Ruth, we read about another kinsman. And there are two kinsmen in the book of Ruth. We talk a lot about the kinsman uh, that is a picture of Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about Boaz, but you know there was a kinsman that was nearer than Boaz. There was a kinsman that had the right to Ruth. There was a kinsman that had the power of life and death over Ruth. And if it hadn't been for Boaz satisfying that kinsman, Ruth could have very well died or been put away. That kinsman is a picture of the law. And as I read this passage, I find this avenger to be a picture of the holy and offended law of God that has every right to destroy and to murder this slayer. Do you know this? You don't have to be a bad person to die and go to hell. All you have to be is a sinner. You know, not all sinners are quote-unquote bad people. Not all sinners are, are vastly immoral people. But you see, this slayer, he may have lived a life that was spotless in the eyes of many. 
He may have lived a life that was above reproach in the eyes of many. He may have been a respected person. But once he committed this sin, that was all that was needed for the avenger to fall upon him. And likewise for you and I, just as the book of James denotes that the law of God is like a chain, that we don't have to break all the links, but we break one link and we've broken all of the law. For you and I as sinners, there is an avenger that pursues us. The wrath of God, John 3.36, abides on us. We have this, uh, this funny paper, this cartoon mentality and theology that one of these days we're going to get to heaven and God's going to set up a bunch of weights and is going to determine whether we're good enough to get into heaven or bad enough to go to hell. But the Bible teaches us uh, that God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, that the world is condemned already, that the wrath of God abides on us already. You see, the danger that this slayer was in is that if that man... If that avenger had fallen upon him, at any moment he would have killed him. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 19.6. It says that this provision, these cities were given, lest the avenger of the blood pursue the slayer while his heart is hot and overtake him, because the way is long and slay him. Look at what it says in Numbers chapter 35. Let me read this to you, verses 26 and 27. It says, But if the slayer shall at any time come without the border of the city of his refuge, whether he was fled, the revenger of blood find him without the borders of the city of his refuge, and the revenger of blood kill the slayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. What I am saying is this, as long as that slayer was outside of that city, then the avenger had a legal right to take his life. No one could uh, jail this avenger of blood. No one could recompense this avenger of blood. He had the legal right to kill this slayer and this fugitive. And do you understand that the law has the right to condemn you as a sinner if you're outside Jesus Christ? We see the danger, but we see His deliverance. What does it say in verse 4? And when he that doth flee unto one of those cities... You see, this slayer, you can imagine in his mind the panic, the fear that is set in He's not meant to do it, but now all of a sudden he's keenly aware of his guilt. I remember what it was as a ten-year-old boy for God to make me keenly aware of my guilt. I remember what it was like a ton of bricks had just hit you all of a sudden like a light had been turned on. You'd been told it your whole life, but now God said it to you. The Word of God has spoken it to you. And now you're aware and in a moment you've become guilty. You've become condemned. And you think, what can I do to find refuge? And then this man... All of a sudden, I don't know where he would have been located. But he casts an eye towards a city in the distance. And he says, if I can but get to that city, then I'll find a place of refuge. I'm thankful there were six cities, not because it fits my outline, not because it presents an interesting composite view of the Christian life, but I'm glad there's six cities because there's one close enough for anybody to make it to if they wanted to. There's one close enough that anybody could get to it if they wanted to. You see, if you was a slayer, if you had committed manslaughter in the nation of Israel, there wasn't no place that was on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong side of the river. If you was on the east side, there's a place for you to go. If you was on the west side, there's a place for you to go. I'm glad today that for the sinner, it doesn't matter what race or creed or color or tax bracket or geographical location or history or past that they've experienced. Wherever you're at, can I say that it's just a hop and a skip to the cross of Calvary. And there's a place of deliverance for you. We see the slayer, but I want you to notice his sanctuary. Where did he go? What was this city? We'll look at verse number 4. 
What did he have to do when he got there? And when he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand at the entering of the gate of the city and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Can I say first off that the city of refuge, this sanctuary was a place of recognition. A place of recognition. You know what this man had to do? When he got to the gate, we know who the gate is, don't we? We know who the door is, don't we? The door to the sheepfold. John chapter number 10. Christ said, I'm the door. I'm the door. If any man enter in by me, he shall, he shall go in and out and shall find pasture. He's the door. And whenever this man came face to face with the door, when he came face to face with the gate, you know what he had to do? He had to look up to see the elders on the wall and he had to say, I'm a murderer. I'm a killer. I'm a manslayer. And I need sanctuary. You see, this man wouldn't get into this city except he was willing to admit what he had done, who and what he was. And in the same way, you know what a sinner does? You know what I did? And I listen, I've said it a hundred thousand times. You're probably sick of hearing it, but I ain't sick of telling it. As long as God don't let me get sick of telling it, I'll never quit telling it. But as a ten-year-old boy, I just stood with my head lifted towards heaven. And I said, God, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And I didn't mean I've done a few things wrong. And I didn't mean I'm better than some and worse than others. But I looked towards heaven and I said, Lord, if you don't save me, I can't be saved. The only hope is within the walls of this city. The only hope is if I can enter in through the gate to the sheepfold. God, the only way is if you'll let me in. Lord, I'm a sinner and I'll die out here if you don't get me inside. Oh, that's when the sinner gets saved. When he recognizes in, in, in whatever words that your heart chooses, when he recognizes I'm a sinner and if I don't get in Jesus Christ, I'll die out here. And I recognize and confess who and what I am. And I plead the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive me. It was a place of recognition. But I see verse 5 that it was a place of refuge. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hand. You see, it was divinely mandated that once he is inside, there was nothing the avenger could do. See, once he got in, there was nothing the avenger could do. Do you know why that is? Because the avenger couldn't enter the city. <laughs> the avenger couldn't enter the city. He had no scriptural right to enter the city. You know that that avenger, that kinsman, he had a right to pursue the life of that man. By, by the law, he had a, lie, a right to pursue that man. And he had a right to exact vengeance upon that man. By the law, he had a right. And if he caught him before he got to that city, he could exact vengeance. One of the great fear I have for so many that are playing games and playing church, you're going to get caught before you ever get to that city. The holy and offended law of God is going to overtake you. Say, how's the law going to overtake me, preacher? Well, the Bible says that the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Death could overtake you at any moment before you make it into that city. You see, but once he's inside, 
the avenger had no entrance into that city. Can I say to you, oh, what a picture of the justification of the sinner. That he comes to Jesus Christ, lost and hopeless and undone and broken, and battered by his sin. But the Word of God says, now, if any man be in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He's hid in the rock. (laughs) He's covered by his hand. And he's placed within the person of Jesus Christ. And you know why the avenger can't go into the city? You know why? Because the city didn't do anything to offend the avenger. The man did. You know why the law can't penetrate to condemn us? You know what the Bible says in John 5, 24? If any man, verily, verily, I say unto you, if any man hear my word and believe on him that sent me, he, uh, he hath everlasting life and is passed from death unto life and shall not come into condemnation. You know why? Because we've been placed in Christ and He's never done anything to offend the law. And His righteousness is our righteousness. And we have been robed in His majesty. I see it was a place of refuge, but I see it was a place of residence. Look back at verse 4 again. Look at the very end. It says, They shall take Him into the city unto them and give Him a place that He may dwell among them. Now, can I switch gears for just a moment? Because I I, I see in this passage that the slayer is a picture of the sinner. And I see that the sanctuary is a picture of Christ. But can I just switch gears and talk for a moment about the safety of this place? You see, this wasn't a place that the slayer just visited for a moment. No, if he ever made it to that city, that was where he lived. That was where he stayed. There was one provision for him to leave that city. And we'll talk about it in a moment. But you know the only provision? The only provision, the only way he could ever leave was if the high priest died. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a minute. This was a place of residence. This was a place where he stayed. And can I say that I'm thankful? Can I let me lift my hand to heaven? And let me bless the Lord for saying that I'm thankful that Jesus Christ is a place of residence. Not just a place we visit when we're down. Not just a place when we're depressed that picks us up. Oh, He does all that and more. But I'm saying it's a place where we stay and depart no more. Why was there safety found there? I'd say first off there was safety there because His punishment had been allotted. Look what it says in verse 6. Look carefully. In verse number 6 it says, And He shall dwell in that city until He stand before the congregation for judgment. You see, he would go and he'd stand in the judgment area before the entire city and the city would hear his cause and hear his case. And then after they had heard it, if they deemed that he was innocent, then they would say, all right, you can stay here, you can dwell here, and you need have no fear. No one can bring this up again because your judgment has already been passed. Can I say I'm thankful that on Calvary there was somebody that stood in my stead You see, it's not me that stood before the congregation for judgment. It's not me that came with the sins on my back. It's not me that came and stood as the guilty sinner before God. But the Bible teaches us that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. I'm thankful that He stood in my stead and in my place. He took my sin upon me. Oh, we have gone astray. Oh, 
we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, my court date's already passed. My judgment's already been given. And he's bore my punishment. And I need not fear the law, for the law's been satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. He had safety because his punishment was allotted, but he had safety because his priest was anointed. Listen to what it says in Numbers chapter 35 as it, as it denotes the, the guidelines. It says, And the congregation shall deliver the slayer out of the hand of the revenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to the city of his refuge, whither he was fled. And he shall abide in it under the death of the high priest, listen, which was anointed with oil. Why you reckon the Bible would say that? <laughs> Every high priest was anointed with oil. Every one of them. To be a high priest, the horn would be filled, the oil would be... But why does it denote that? I'll tell you why, because I don't believe it's talking about the same high priest that a lot of folks think it's talking about. Oh, I understand that in this time, in this context, I understand it was denoting the high priest at that time in, in the nation of Israel. But I find as I read my Bible that there's another high priest that I believe this is hearkening to. And the Bible, listen to what it is. Oh, I can't say it any better than God can say it. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He's been anointed in a way that nobody else has been anointed. What, what reckon do you think that Christ means? What reckon do you think that Messiah means? It means the anointed one. What do you think happened when at the beginning of his ministry the Holy Ghost of God descended in the likeness of a dove and the Bible says dwelt upon him? Dwelt upon him. You see, that I understand that He's God. I understand He always was God. He always will be God. I understand that He was God when He was in His earthly body. But, you know, I've heard people say before, I remember hearing someone say one time, they said, well, you know, I bet when Jesus was little that He did all kinds of miracles, healing little broken bird wings and, and you know, healing little puppy dogs. That sounds cute, but the Bible says this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Galilee, Canaan of Galilee. In John chapter number 2. You know what had to happen before that could happen? Because He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. You know what had to happen first? The Holy Ghost had to dwell upon Him. I, and, and listen, I know we're dealing with mysteries of the Godhead that we'll never explain, but can I just simply say that one of the reasons that this man knew he had safety was because he knew that the holy priest of God, the one that was there that wore the effort and the mitre, the one that ministered daily in the presence of God, the one that in a certain sense was the go-between meeting out and passing out the judgment of God in the nation of Israel, this slayer could have confidence in understanding that that man is appointed by God. If God set him up, then God will not allow him to be harmed or to be touched. And his safety was vested in the divinely chosen office of the high priest. Can I just tell you something? Can I tell you that God was satisfied with Jesus Christ? Oh, we may not be, but God was. God's not looking for another. Jesus Christ is Him. He's it. 
He's the God-man. He's the righteous one. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Rose of Sharon. He's the Lily of the Valley. He's not one of many. He is the Savior of all men. God is satisfied with Him. When He saw the travail of His soul, He was satisfied. And He's not looking for another. So if we're in Him, we're safe. We're safe. And can I give you a final one? Now, hush. I'm seeing how many times you'll let me say that before you get mad and walk out. I want to say that his safety was vested in the fact that his punishment was already allotted. It was vested in the fact that his priest was anointed. But it was also vested in the fact that his priest is eternal. (laughs) Maybe not him, but for you and I, we know that our safety resides in the fact that we have an eternal high priest. You see, <laughs> he was to stay in that city. I told you a moment ago we'd talk about it. There's, there's only one stipulation for which he was to leave that city. One means wherewith he could leave after he had got in. Only one. And that was if the high priest died. Well, that wasn't uncommon in that time. In fact, the book of Hebrews is very uh, deliberate about that. It says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. I mean, priests had no supernatural uh, length of life. They lived, they died just like anyone else. That was part of the weakness of the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood is that the priest would have to offer for his own sins because he was a sinner and because he was a sinner, he was appointed unto death and he could only minister for so long. And every priest, you know, one of the biggest portions of the Levitical priesthood scripture, the scripture that deals with it, deals with how you institute new priests and what happens when the old priest dies. But you see, our Savior, He's not a priest after the order of Aaron or a priest after the order of the Levites. Listen to what it says in that same chapter. Hebrews 7, verse 15 says, And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal command, power of an endless life. I don't believe Melchizedek was Jesus, but I believe he pictured Jesus. The Bible says he was like unto the Son of God. That means he wasn't, he was like unto the Son of God. Now, if you, if you, you can throw your shoe at me if you disagree, that's fine. But the truth is, he, they weren't one and the same, but Melchizedek was a type of Christ. You know that Melchizedek, his, his birth and his death are not recorded in Scripture, having no beginning nor ending. In fact, we don't know anything about Melchizedek except the office that he fulfilled with Abraham. That's the only thing for the most part that, that we know about, that he was eternal, that he was both a priest and a king and a prophet. That's all we know about him. The Bible says that after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus is made high priest. The power of an endless life. It says there in verse number 23, And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man... Well, who's this man? Jesus Christ. But this man. They all died and went away and a new priest had to be instituted. But this man. All those other priests, they were able to be holden by death. Death came knocking on their door and stole them away from the ministry that God had called them. But this man, this man's different. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also, oh, I like this, to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. You know what that means, save them to the uttermost? Oh, we've all heard it. You know, he saves them from the guttermost to the uttermost. We've all heard that. You know, that doesn't mean that he really, really saves them. That's not what that means. 
What that means is that because He never dies, His work as a mediatorial and intercessory priest continues forever. In other words, when it says the uttermost, it's not talking about the lowest depths or the highest heights. It's talking about for the longest time to the uttermost. In other words, there's never going to be a time. There's never going to be a time when you outlive Jesus. There's never going to be a time when your sin is too dark, when your unrighteousness is too black. There's never going to be a time when He's not around. He saves us to the uttermost because of His endless life. And you see, we'll never depart out of Him. You know why we'll never depart out of Him? Because He'll never depart out of us. We'll never depart out of Him because He'll never depart. Well, never, there'll never be a time when we're not safe within the arms of the everlasting God. Never be a time when we're not safe within the person of Jesus Christ if we've been saved. There'll never be that time. One of the biggest problems I have with the, uh, with people that claim you lose your salvation. I know there's lots of good folks that do it and we can fuss and fight about it. I had a grandmama or an aunt or an uncle or a net, whatever, that's fine. They might be good people and they might love you, but they're wrong on their doctrine if they believe you can lose your salvation. They're wrong. I don't hate them. I'm not mad at them. But they're wrong about that. And one of the biggest problems I have with this notion that you can lose your salvation is this. And let's stroll off put it this way. It's always stuck with me. He said, where do we get our life from? We got it from God. Well, what kind of life does God have? Does God have temporal life that begins and ends and passes away? No, God doesn't have temporal life. He has what kind of life? Eternal life. So that tells me something, friend. If you got your life from God, you got eternal life. That's the only kind He's got. Oh, you can say it's too simple, but it's just because you know it's true. You see, we never have to worry about being found outside of that city if we've once entered it. Because the high priest, he continueth forever. We never have to worry if we've entered into that city. We don't have to worry about the avenger entering in and claiming our lives. For we're safe within him. If you've ever been saved, you don't have to worry about getting re-saved because you can't get unsaved. We said it this morning. Folks say, well, if I can just hold on, if I can just hold on. That's your problem you're trying to hold on. You'll die and go to hell if you're trying to hold on. But if you'll come to Jesus Christ and ask Him to forgive you and save you, oh, you might get a good hold of Him, but more important than that, He'll get a good hold of you. He'll never let you go. He said, none, none has escaped out of my Father's hand. He said, of all those that my Father hath given me, He said, I have lost none. He won't start with you. But understand that if you're here today and you're without Christ, at any moment the avenger could fall upon you. Death could come knocking to your door. Will you be found without that city? If you're here without Christ, why don't you just come to the gate? Why don't you just come to the gate? Cry out that you're a sinner. Ask God to let you in. Ask Christ to forgive you. And He'll do it before it's everlasting too late.